about next week, but I'm also excited about today. So if you have your Bible, I want you to go ahead and open it up with me. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 in just a moment to begin, but before we get there, let me just uh, make mention that this weekend, we've got over 30 of our teenagers and uh, youth ministry leaders up at winter retreat right now. And yeah, they're having a great time up there. I don't know if you've been seeing some of the pictures that are posting from The Current on their Instagram stories or from Pendel Youth Ministries, but our students are having an incredible time this weekend. And, and th- these are what I call those mountaintop experiences. You ever had one of those? A mountaintop moment with God? Maybe it was in a revival or uh, <coughs> maybe just a, a series of, of gatherings. Maybe it was at a ministry retreat, but they're those moments where you can remove yourself from the influence of culture where you can remove yourself from the, the, the pressures just that come from peers and from society, and you can just get in the presence of God, and God can do something powerful in your life. I want to promise you, our students this weekend are having that kind of a moment. They are immersed in an atmosphere where biblical values are being promoted, where their faith is being cultivated, and those are important moments. In fact, if you have a child in grades first through sixth, If you haven't already signed them up for the kids' breakaway, I want to encourage you to do it. You've got just a couple more Sundays to sign them up. These moments, and if you've ever experienced them, you can attest, these moments are catalyzing for our faith. But I say that to to also acknowledge the fact that those moments are not where we were intended to stay. Now, some of you are like, you mean i got to have my kids come back in my house? No, they're not staying Thank God for the mountaintop moments, but God's plan and purpose for our life is that we have an experience, that we have an encounter with him, and then that we come back and we live out our faith in the valley. I think about Moses in the Old Testament. He went up to the mountain, and you remember God spoke to him. He downloaded the Ten Commandments, first one to get a message on a tablet from the cloud. God spoke to Moses, and, and it was amazing. I mean, he was just supernaturally provided for, didn't eat anything for 40 days and nights. But how many of you know God called him to go back down and lead the people in the wilderness? Even in the New Testament, in Matthew 17, Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John on a mountain. And the first thing that happens, you know, Peter, he opens his mouth, and he's like, we should build temples here. We'll build a tabernacle. I'll make a shelter for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. It'll be great. And God speaks from heaven and kind of rebukes Peter in that moment. He says, this is my son. Listen to him. Jesus understood our, our purpose is not to stand up here and build a shelter and bask in the glory of God. What did he do? Jesus went back down the mountain to where he found hurting people that needed a healing Jesus. And so thank God for the mountaintop experiences. We need those moments in our life, but they are to prepare us to walk out our faith in places that are often filled with conflict, places that are filled filled with differing opinions, differing worldviews, people that want to argue with you, contend with you, demoralize you, defame you. For those convictions that are so celebrated on the mountain, you find out that, wow, these things are a little harder to live out in the valley. And and the truth is our our natural tendency might be to just want to avoid all conflict. And by the way, uh, you should avoid conflict if you're the one causing it. (laughs) 
We should, in fact, let me, let, before we get to Ephesians, let me just give you a verse to just kind of give a foundation, because I'm going to say some things that might sound the opposite of this later, and so I just want to give you a little foundation. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says this, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So there's the flip side of the the coin that we're looking at today. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. How many of you know some folks that it's just not possible? You've tried. Like I I went there, I did the Romans 12, 8 thing, they just won't have it. And the reality is sometimes we get in those situations. I want you to know, while it is true that we should live at peace, if at all possible, with all people, you need to understand that growth requires struggle. I don't know if you ever lifted weights before, but the only way to increase your strength is to increase your resistance. So my wife bought me some new weights back at Christmas time. You got to increase the resistance to increase the growth. Some of you are looking at my physique and you're thinking she didn't buy them heavy enough. I know what you're thinking. (laughs) But I'm pacing myself. How do you know what I'm talking about? There are things, there are moments. It doesn't mean we're looking for conflict. It doesn't mean we're going out looking for a fight. It doesn't mean trying to be combative with other people. But it is an acknowledgement that there is going to be a resistance to our faith. I want you to know your cause determines your conduct. Your cause determines your conduct. It's in Ephesians 4 if you're there. Paul describes this very point. He says in verse 1, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. He said live a life worthy of the calling. In other words, live a life that's worthy of the cause. You were called to something that is, that is greater than yourself, so live a life worthy of the calling in Matthew 6:33 Jesus said seek first the kingdom and his righteousness that's the high call of Christ so seek righteousness and then look at verse 2 he, Paul says be completely humble and gentle be patient bearing with one another in love did you know there's 59 places in the new testament that tell us how we should treat one another Like, this is important. Paul is saying this is the way that we ought to treat one another. But then look at the next verse. Verse 3 says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, that's kind of a convicting statement right there. And i got to just kind of put the question back to you today. Have you made every effort? Have you made every effort to be peaceable, to to keep the bond of peace. <clears throat> Let me just tell you, when it comes to conflict in our culture, if you're more concerned about being right than righteous, then you're not seeking first the kingdom. Because Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And we all, we all know what it feels like to, to know we're right and to have somebody come against us. And, and there's something in all of us that wants to rise up. But he says to us here, make Every effort. In fact, Jesus said, a new command I give to you. 
love one another. And then in, in the next verse, John 13, 35, Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you do, in fact, love one another. So can I just remind all of us today that the greatest apologetic of our gospel is our love. Our love is the greatest apologetic for the gospel because our cause determines our conduct. And we have a great cause, church. Amen? We have a great cause. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus gives us the invitation in Matthew 16, 24. He says, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. We have an invitation to carry a cross. We have an invitation to be a city on a hill, to be a lamp on a stand. We don't have an invitation to be a spoon that stirs the bowl of controversy. Your cause determines your conduct. Now, that being said, because I'm moving in a different direction with this message today, and and I I just want to be cautious that I don't arm you up for some battle, that the words I'm giving you are to minister your, to your soul, not to be bullets for the next battle on social media with somebody else. That's not my heart's desire today. So I needed you to hear all of that about conflict and the heart of God and the nature and the spirit of the, the fruit of the spirit of God in our lives before I turn this corner. Because I want you to know today that one of the most damaging things you can do for your faith and for your witness, one of the most damaging things that you can do is to disguise it when you face resistance. Chameleons are amazing animals that God created. They have this defense mechanism, this survival instinct, that when they feel danger... They can change their color. They can blend in to their environment. You've seen this before. They can literally change their stripes, change their appearance, so that to avoid danger, to avoid being attacked by a predator, they just change the way that they appear, and they blend in. Can I tell you, church, you were not designed to be a chameleon. Let that sink in. You were not intended by God for conformity. God's plan and purpose for your life was not that he would fill you with the power of the Spirit of God just so that you could go unnoticed, so that you could fly under the radar, so that somehow, some way, no harm would come to you because no one would notice the difference in your life. Can I tell you, you are marked You are marked by God. You are a royal priesthood, 1 Peter says. A holy people, a holy nation. God's own possession. And and for those that are Christian chameleons, those that can just blend in and change their stripes to avoid confrontation so easily, I want to tell you, the Bible says you're dangerous. You're unstable. In fact, it was James, the brother of Jesus, that said emphatically in James 1.8, such a person is double-minded. And I'm not up here to throw stones. I'm, I want to actually show you in the Word of God that even the, the greatest heroes of our faith struggled with the temptation to blend in. 
even those that, that loved God that we would call the heroes of the faith had moments where there were circumstances and, and, and people and situations that, that pressured them to vacillate on their convictions. And their stories serve as a cautionary tale for all of us. So let me tell you about a few of them. If you've got your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 12, where we find the story of Abraham, who is called in the word of God the father of our faith. So if you want to start with the most spiritual people, go with the one who's called the father of our faith. His name's not Abraham yet. God hasn't changed it. His name's Abram when we meet him. But the Bible says in Genesis chapter 12, he's following God in obedience to the Lord's command, going to a place he doesn't even know yet where he's going, but he's just walking by faith. But then verse 10, let's pick it up there. Genesis 12.10 says, now there was a famine in the land. And when Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe, as he, brought, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me. But let you live. So l listen to this chameleon statement right here. Verse 13. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. If there was ever a sentence that was a precursor to marriage counseling, that's the one. Just tell them you're my sister. Like, let's pretend, right? Let's, let's just pretend because they're, they're going to lay eyes on you, and, and they might want to take you from me, and, and it, it's in my best interest. It's in my best interest that we pretend. What's interesting is that every other moment so far in the story, since we meet Abraham, everywhere he goes, he's building an altar to God. He's walking by faith. He's trusting the Lord. In every place the Lord leads him, the first thing he does is build an altar. It's an outward symbolic way of acknowledging the Lord is here. This, this is the Lord's place. He's led me thus far. But it's interesting, when he goes down to Egypt, we never see Abram building an altar. And the reason he's not building an altar is because he's not moving there by faith. He's moving there by fear. He's looked at the situation. He recognizes there, there's a famine and sources are limited, and so he starts operating out of fear instead of <coughs> out of faith, and he thinks the wise thing for me to do, even though it might be dangerous, even though I, I might lose my life going into Egypt, because he was so consumed with today's provisions, he compromised his convictions, and he went down to Egypt. <coughs> Can I just tell you today that if your actions reflect a lack of belief in God, then your actions are wrong, no matter how you justify them. If your actions reflect a lack of belief in God, they're wrong. Why? Because Hebrews eleven six tells us without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if you're not putting faith in God, it's not possible that you're pleasing God. So what do you do? I mean, what do you do in a circumstance like this? Because, I mean, it's easy to talk about somebody else's problem, but put yourself in Abraham's shoes for a moment. What do you do? Do we, do we just deny the circumstance? Oh, there, there's no famine. 
there's no problem. Oh, there's no danger in Egypt. I mean, it's not like they've, you know, killed other men and taken their wives before. No, it is. So what do we do? I'm going to tell you that the, the statement of faith, the activity of faith, is not to deny reality. Walking by faith does not require walking in ignorance. A lot of people think that if I'm going to trust God and believe God, I've got to deny the circumstances. I've got to pretend like this isn't really happening. I've got to pretend that the, the culture isn't actually saying this, that people aren't actually coming against my convictions. No, listen, walking by faith is not walking in ignorance. Walking by faith is an insistence on seeing more than the reality. Walking by faith is not denying the problem, it's seeing more than the problem. See, the Bible says in Hebrews 11:1, 1, now faith is being sure of what we hope for. It's the confidence in what we hope for, and it's the assurance about things we do not see. It's the ability to see more than what our circumstances actually reveal in the moment. That's what faith does. It zooms out. You ever heard the analogy of missing the forest for the tree? When we start to walk by fear, that's what happens. We get, we get so close to the problem that we forget the goodness of God. We forget that God knows the end from the beginning, that he does all things well, that he leads us and he guides us, that his goodness goes before us, that his mercy follows after us all the days of our life. We get so close to the issue at hand, we miss the goodness of God. That's what Abram did. And in verse 13, in verse 13 it says he starts to rationalize lies. What started out as doubting God now has turned into a full-blown lie that includes his wife. <clears throat> he said, let's tell him that I want you to go along. And then he almost gets Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, wrapped up in his lie. Because Pharaoh believes it's just his sister and he takes her into his harem and he's about to sleep with her before God intervenes and rescues her. So here's Abram causing shame for his wife and embarrassment. And all of a sudden now he's, he's kicked out of Egypt. And that's the way sin works. Can, can I just encourage you to never tell yourself, I can sin a little bit. Because it's like a snowball that you roll down a big hill. It's going to grow. It's going to grow. And Abram finds himself in a difficult situation, a place of embarrassment and humiliation. And that's what can happen to us when all of a sudden maybe the money starts to run low and we're afraid. Or, or when the storm starts raging in our life. Or, or people are being combative with us about our biblical convictions. All of a sudden, the chameleon inside of us wants to start to rise up. We begin to start to strategize and scheme for survival. Live to fight another day, we tell ourselves as we blend in. It's almost like Peter when the storm was raging and Jesus called to him and said, Come and walk on the water. Many of you know that story. Peter got out of the boat, he began to walk on the water to Jesus, but then soon he began to sink. Why? Did he sink because all of a sudden he realized there's a storm raging? All of a sudden he realized that there's waves that are crashing and rain that's falling? No. He cried out to Jesus from the storm. 
Peter's problem was not that he recognized there was a storm while he was walking on the water. His problem was he got so focused on the storm that he lost sight of Jesus. Let me tell you about another man of God who played the chameleon. 1 Samuel chapter 21 tells the story of David. David, by this time, has already been anointed to be the next king of Israel. But he also knows in 1 Samuel 21 that Saul, his predecessor, wants him dead. In fact, he's so committed to killing David that he tried to kill his son Jonathan for protecting David. He threw a spear at his head. And so now David is running for his life in 1 Samuel 21. And he's run away from Israel and he's in the town of Gath. Now if Gath sounds familiar, it's because that was the hometown of Goliath, the Philistine from Gath. The giant that David killed with a stone and a sling. So now David is running from King Saul and he's in Gath. Pick up the story with me in 1 Samuel 21 verse 10. It says, that day David fled from Saul and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances, saying Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Verse 12, David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. Now, I don't know if that surprises you at all. I mean, I've been in some difficult peer pressure moments, and I'm thinking there's a lot of ways you could play this. You know, if you're, I mean, I, I would have said like, oh, no, 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 he's my second cousin. We look alike. I don't know. David goes straight for the insanity plea. I mean, he is full on pretending now. You talk about being committed to your story. Look at this. It says he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. I mean, he's gone full-on Tasmanian devil mode. He's just like, he's fully committed to being committed. He acts like a madman in this moment. This is David who killed a bear and a lion with his bare hands. This is David who faced Goliath with a sling and a stone. This is the David they had heard about. And the women danced in the streets and sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed ten thousands. Now he's running from Saul. He finds himself in another kingdom. He's surrounded by adversaries. You know, it's amazing what things will do when we face intimidation. Things that we never said we would do, we rationalize. Ever been there? I never thought I would, but David gave in to fear. Can I tell you, it is hard to steer when you're driven by fear. David's trying to, he's trying to just get out of this situation, but he's so overcome with fear. He's so overcome with intimidation. 
He's literally acting like a madman. There's a lot of Christians that have been in situations like that where all of a sudden you felt pressured to conformity. You felt pressured to, to, to just go along, get along, to, to make it. And, and you all of a sudden, you, you did what he did. You, you go crazy. <laughs> and so, you know, there's that one person on the job that just keeps taking the Lord's name in vain. And they, they blaspheme God. And you don't want to make a scene. And so you just kind of chuckle and laugh with everybody else. Or maybe it's the coworker that female coworker. But keeps you going out. You don't want to cause a scene. You don't want to be that guy. So you just kind of laugh and, and go along. And like a chameleon, we just want to kind of fake it and make it. David has gone mad. He's lost his influence. Maybe none of those illustrations landed with you, but I wonder how many times have you had to wipe the drool off your chin before coming in the church doors so that no one knew the pretender you'd become. I'll tell you what happens when we start feeling the intimidation of our culture or our peers. We start forgetting things. We start forgetting the promises God made. We start forgetting the provisions God gave. That's what happened to David. He forgot the promises God made. He forgot the provisions that God gave. If you go back a couple chapters to chapter 17 in 1 Samuel, you come to the moment where he's on the battlefield with Goliath. He's there toe-to-toe with the giant from Gath. And he makes this incredible statement in verse 47 that somehow over the course of the next several years, he must have forgotten about. But here's the statement. He says, all those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. What a confident statement from this little 17-year-old teenager on the battlefield. He didn't just say, with his five stones, God's going to give me that giant. He says, God's going to give all of you into our hands. Why? Because David knew the provision of God. The battle is the Lord's. God had given him a promise. It's not going to be by sword or spear or a stone or a sling. The battle belongs to to the Lord. It's like the moment when God showed up, when Jesus showed up in the Old Testament to Gideon, and he said, you're a mighty warrior. I'm calling you to deliver my people, and Gideon responded, and he said, who, me? What did he say? I'm the least of my people, and my clan is the weakest among the people. None of those things were true, but in that moment, Gideon was intimidated by the task, and he began to see himself for less than he really was. Can I just encourage somebody today? Don't sell yourself short on who God has called you to be. Don't let intimidation by other people cause you to demote your purpose in the kingdom of God. And I can't think of a more powerful illustration than right here in the life of David. He forgot the promises of God, but he also forgot the provision of God. If you look a little earlier in 1 Samuel 21, what you learn is that David had ran quickly to get away from King Saul, and he didn't bring any supplies with him. So he goes into one of the temples where the, the priest Ahimelech is at, and he says, I, I need some bread. I, I'm on a mission by the king. He's making up stories. I'm on the king's mission, but I need bread. And Ahimelech tells him, we don't have any ordinary bread here. In fact, the only bread we have is the, is the bread of the presence. 
of God. And so in verse 6, it says, So the priest gave David the consecrated bread, since there was no other bread except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and placed by, replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken. In other words, every day they would bake fresh bread and they would put it at a specific place on the altar. Jesus would later say, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. That bread sat there on the altar as a reminder that God is with you. And so here's David running for his life, and and of all the provisions he could get, here's the presence of the Lord. Here's a reminder, David, that the presence of God is with you. I don't have any ordinary bread, but I have the bread of God's presence. How will that do? And David puts it in his knapsack, and then he says, you know, in my haste to do the king's business, I didn't even think to grab my sword. Do you have a sword or a spear that I could use? And Ahimelech says, well, um, we do have one on display in the back. It's behind the ephod. It's the sword of Goliath. David, you remember the sword that you used to cut off the giant's head? Yeah, it's, it's in a display case in the back. You want that sword? So David runs from Saul into Gath, carrying the bread of God's presence and the sword of his greatest victory. And yet, because of fear and intimidation, he forgot about God's promise and he forgot about God's provision. And he pretended to be mad. I can't think of a more extreme paradox than to see David as a teenager with the prophet Samuel pouring oil on his head, dripping down his face as he's anointed to be the next king of Israel. And then in another scene, we see him standing outside of the gate of Gath with saliva running down his face. That's the difference between a man or a woman of God who doesn't forget God's promises and God's provisions. I want to ask our worship team to come. Verse, Psalm 103, verse 2, David said, Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. David knew how easy it was to forget. So he says, forget not all of his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Can I encourage somebody today? Do not Put on a disguise every time your faith causes you to stand out from the crowd. God anointed David to stand out from the crowd. And yet, he gave in to a spirit of fear. He was intimidated. And he played the chameleon. There's many more. We could talk about Peter, who said, Jesus, even if all fall away, I'll never deny you. And then warming himself by a fire on the night of Jesus' arrest. Three different times, people came up to him and said, Hey, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? Nope, not me. 
Well, your accent sounds Galilean. Didn't you come with the teacher? Oh, no, no, I've never been there before. Till finally a little girl comes up to him the third time and says, I know you're one of his disciples, and he cussed her out. Talk about changing your stripes real quick. That's what happens, though, when we choose to warm ourselves by a fire of compromise. When, when Peter chose to just surround himself with other people that were up in the middle of the night before the rooster crowed for one reason, they all wanted to see what was going to be done to Jesus. It was a hostile environment and he found comfort in it. And that's a warning to all of us that we could be so comfortable in an atmosphere like that that we would try to blend in and at the same time compromise our convictions. So I have a couple questions I want to ask you. What are you going to do? Because it's not if, it's when we'll face the fire. It's not if, it's when we'll face the pressure to conform. What are you going to do when you find yourself in a different place and it's hard to trust God like it was for Abraham? What are you going to do when you find yourself outnumbered like David was? Yeah, I got a lot of spiritual victories behind me, but I, I feel kind of vulnerable in this conversation, in this office, in this atmosphere. What are you going to do when identifying with Christ might actually cost you something like it did for Peter? I want to invite you to stand with me all over this room as we get ready to end this service. We're going to go to God in prayer. And I just wonder this morning if even in a service like this, there might be some people that you're not just playing the chameleon out there. Maybe you even come in here today and you, you feel conviction over the front that you've put on things that you've done a pretty good job of keeping well hidden from others. Maybe, maybe you're here today and you're worshiping, but nobody knows the kind of fights that you and your spouse have. Maybe you're here today and you look good, but you've never shown or revealed the conflict that's happening with your kids. Maybe, maybe you're here today and you're blending in with this crowd well, but in your heart you know that you're sitting under a mountain of debt and it's about to choke the life out of you. Maybe you've got a coping mechanism that has taken control. See, we can do it in the world, but we can do it in the church too. We can play the chameleon and just fit right in. I want to tell you the good news today. The good news is, no matter what it is you're hiding or who it is you're hiding it from, Jesus already knows. And that's only good news if you know Jesus. That's a scary thought if you don't know Jesus. But if you know Jesus, you know his heart. You know the fact that there's nothing that you've done or hidden in your life that isn't already covered by the work at the cross. That's good news. That's good news for us today. To know that we can come out of hiding. We can come out of secrecy. We can come out of playing the game.
Because Jesus knows everything about us. And while we were still sinners, he died for us. And before we pray, I just want to give you one more verse. As we're here in the middle of the winter season, this this verse is just such a vivid illustration of what God wants to do for those who have secret sin. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 says, come now, let us settle the matter. Can I tell you, that's what God wants to do today. He wants to settle the matter. Says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though here you are and you've got some secret things in your life, maybe nobody else knows about, but God knows. So come out of the hiding with him. Would you bow your head with me? Would you take a few moments to just focus your attention and your thoughts on the Lord and that voice that's speaking from the inside, the Holy Spirit that's inviting you to come out, come out of hiding, to come out of secret shame or guilt, to be seen in his presence, just like Adam and Eve were seen in his presence. God said, come out of hiding. He didn't do it to embarrass them. He did it to clothe them with grace. Father, right now, I ask that you would clothe your people with grace. Those that feel like if anybody knew what I did, if anybody knew what I was facing, if anybody knew what I was going through, I'd be humiliated. I wouldn't be accepted. People would be shocked. God, help us in this moment to see you know you're not shocked. You're not appalled. Because your grace has already gone before our sin to make a way for us to be redeemed. So that's you today. I just want to invite you right where you're standing to make an altar with the Lord and say, Jesus, I receive forgiveness. Jesus, I, I, I renounce secret shame. I renounce hidden sins. I renounce the, the chameleon that I've been playing. And God, I come clean with you today. I receive your forgiveness. I receive forgiveness right now. Lord, make me a new creation in Christ Jesus. Go to the darkest places and turn the light of your love on. In Jesus' name, I thank you for it.